So, a wonderful woman who is a really gifted practitioner. She's a gifted minister. She's a wise woman. She is a loving presence. She is one of our staff ministers. I invite you to welcome with me my friend, Reverend Catherine McLeod. Good morning. So before I begin my talk, let's connect with each other. Let's connect with that spirit within us that is perfect, whole, and absolutely complete. So I invite you to know this truth with me, that there is one life, that life truly is spirit. That life is my life right now. And so from that place of calm, connection, appreciation, and joy, I bring my heart, my mind, my body to this place, to this center of spirit, always present within me, always present within each of us. Today I celebrate the beautiful dress of autumn, the smell in the air, the crunch of the leaves, the beauty of the sunshine. And I say yes to life, to my life, to this wonderful life, this perfect life. And I invite you to do the same as together we say, and so it is. Thank you, Brown. The title of my talk today is Building a Bigger Boat. It's just a little metaphor about becoming a bigger self. And I was listening to CBC Radio on a program called Tapestry, which comes on, I think, around 4 o'clock. Norm and I are usually making dinner for our children and our grandchildren about that time, and Mary Hines always has this most interesting guest on. It's a show, a program about spirituality, religion, and the secular, I would say. She has really uh, very thoughtful and wise people on. And the one day that really spoke to me, the person that was on was a psychologist, a therapist, an author, and a university lecturer by the name of Dr. Mary Pfeiffer. She wrote the book, Reviving Ophelia. Now, one of the things I really believe, and I saw it in a quote the other day, was that the best sermons, I'll switch that and say the best talks, are lived, not preached. So today, I'm really going to talk to you about my life, my living, and it just happens to match quite nicely with the message that I heard from Dr. Mary Pfeiffer. For about 10 years or more, she worked as a therapist and Probably her area of expertise was working with young women. She said that what she discovered was that our culture bombards young women with this message that they are to be pencil-thin, beautiful, and sexy. And that the idea of thinness has actually dropped by 
pounds over the past 20 years. So that now a woman, to be pencil thin and be model-like, needs to be 5 foot 8 and weigh, and weigh 110 pounds. The average woman, young woman, is 5 foot 6 and weighs 145 pounds. The women that she was seeing were the women that were trying to create that body type that really wasn't their natural body. Not to mention all kinds of women who don't consider themselves beautiful. So she was dealing with the reality that our culture seems to be giving women, that is, their whole worth as they step into womanhood is based on this body type and beauty and sexuality. And so these young women were trying to get themselves to that, or if they knew that they weren't that, they were dealing with their anger and their self kind of loathing around the fact that they didn't fit the image. But this talk she was giving was not about that. This talk was about her personal life, and the title of the book was Seeking Peace, The Chronicles of the World's Worst Buddha. Her story, though, is a universal story, and it's my story, and I would imagine that for lots of you it's your story too. She says that to all of us at some point in our life we're going to face a crisis. If you're young and you haven't faced a crisis yet, I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's probably true. She does say that that crisis is kind of a defining moment that really deepens and widens and opens us up and wakes us up. And in the moment, it doesn't feel like it's a good thing at all. But in reflection, from her wise years looking back, she sees that it truly was a gift. Now, the premise of my talk is I'm going to tell you what I'm working on in my life. Three things I'm working on to become a better self and to build a better boat. I'm looking at being mindful. And mindful is, really means compassion and awareness. I'm trying to be mindful of how I'm feeling and how am I, I'm responding to things. The second thing I'm trying to do is to stay open. To stay open to messages that maybe and information that don't fit maybe perfectly with how I think, and even to opposing ideologies and ideas within me and around me. The third thing I'm trying to work on is to treat everything and everyone as a teacher, even those people that drive me crazy. Mary Pfeiffer, in her book and in her life, was a famous author. Her book went to the number one bestseller list immediately. It really resonated with women's groups and women and parents and educators. She was on the Oprah Winfrey show several times. She was on all the talk shows. She was invited to be on radio programs. She was lecturing at universities and women's programs. She was talking to parents. She was busy. She said on a typical day she would phone home and there were 14 invitations to speak on her answering machine. She had a passion for her work. She believed deeply that she could have an impact in the lives of young women. And so she accepted invitations. She was traveling all the time. She was never home. She was frightened, she said, 
Before she spoke, she wanted to be very prepared, and she was always very nervous. Some of the people that interviewed her were very aggressive and actually kind of confronted her opinions. She said she was a, the type of person that was always soft-spoken, never combative, just had no idea how to handle aggressive interviewers. She'd finish each session or each interview or each lecture exhausted. And she said, I always disappointed the people who invited me and paid so much money to have me because by the time I was done my stint, I could not deal with going out for dinner with them. I couldn't socialize and talk and have late conversations, partly because I'm on the plane the next morning, but partly because I have nothing left. She did this for a number of years, and she came to the point where she knew she was bone-tired. She lived under this great duress and stress. She had a wonderful home, a nice husband, kids that were launched. Everything else in her life was going well. Her life was going well. She was, by anybody's standards, an absolute success on every front, doing work she loved, being, fa- being paid well, famous. But she said inside, she was starting to crumble, and she knew she'd reached the end when she was sitting in a restaurant on a cold, wet, rainy night, tired, and she ordered a bowl of chili. And when it came to her, it smelt and it tasted exactly like She said, I'm a therapist. I knew I was in deep trouble. She went home. I haven't had quite that dramatic of an experience, but when I was probably about the same age as Mary, starting back full-time, big-time in a career, working with families and children, probably doing the work of three people, trying to build an agency, My children were kind of teenagers, and the home front was not a sanctuary. I was uh, trying to kind of do everything and keep all the balls in the air to be a perfect mother, or at least a very good one, a responsible one, a very, a very committed professional, a committed and loving wife, a good daughter. My dad had just had a stroke, and my mom was trying to do all his care, and we were at the point where she was in crisis, and we needed to hire workers. I had too many things to deal with. The pivotal defining moment for me was I was at work. My office secretary was talking to me. I was distressed because there was a number of issues that she kept presenting to me that I wasn't dealing with, and some of them were just, I felt like negative pickiness about some of the, of the staff. Her physical body size grew, grew, grew. She felt twice as big as me, and I felt like I was absolutely shrinking, and it felt like a real thing, a visual thing. I drove home that night, and I could hardly keep my car on the road. I was so tired. I knew I could not cope with this anymore, that something had to give, and I wasn't giving up my job. But I I just didn't know what to move to make this right. I bumped into this story about a university professor talking about stress management, and he held up a glass of water in front of his students, and he said, this glass of water probably weighs about 20 milligrams, it's light. But if I hold it for 10 minutes, the weight doesn't change, but it feels heavier. If I hold it for half an hour, I've got pain in my arm, and it's running up to my shoulder. If I hold it a day, you're calling an ambulance. 
We need to stop sometimes and set it down. We need to go home from work and have a sanctuary where we can regroup and refresh ourselves. Mary Pfeiffer, a therapist, somehow forgot that. She went home, she started reading Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, she had no spirituality, she said she knew nothing about Buddhism, but for some reason she said Buddhism kind of was, a, was attractive to her. She didn't understand it, but she said, when I read the text, I felt compassion for myself, and I com- felt compassion for other people. She did those things that some of us have to learn the hard way, which is to truly take care of ourselves, to put ourselves first, and to love and nurture ourselves and to figure out what we want, how we feel, and what we need. Mary had to learn awareness, compassion, awake. How am I feeling? How am I reacting? She said she learned to meditate. She kept a journal. She's a writer. It's probably easy for her to keep a journal. But she said writing was very therapeutic to her. She took long, hot baths. She started doing yoga. But meditation, she said, really was her pivotal moment. It really turned down her hot mind. She wasn't sleeping. She couldn't eat right. She had high blood pressure. Her heart was erratic and irregular. When I came here, I really felt I stumbled onto this place and I didn't understand the message. I simply knew in my heart and in my body that it felt good. I didn't understand the message. I liked, didn't have the banners, but I liked the message of we're one and that there was this real respect and more than respect, this kind of inclusiveness of the diversity of religious teaching and spirituality. I went to class because I tried to figure out what this was all about and because I had such an ache in my soul to change my life that I was very motivated. And it did turn my life around. Right now I'm going through another little angst moment. For the last seven months, my mom has been in the hospital. So for three days out of every week, I've lived in her hometown, the town I grew up in. We just got her home from the hospital the last month, and now we have care providers there. And so Wednesday I was there. She's starting to not be very able to walk well, and so she's now in a wheelchair, and that's just a new thing. So for the first time for both of us, we took our virgin flight in a wheelchair van. You know, they've got these metal lifts, and uh, she looks so vulnerable sitting there being kind of lifted up in the rain and the wind. And it, really, I could tell it was like not very comfortable for me or her. Real nice farmer, ranch kind of guy, retired, probably was driving the van. And when we came home, there was kind of this lineup in front of the school, and we were sitting there, and right beside us is a park with Lions Park on it. And the driver said, there's another nice young woman that I know her family was sitting behind us. He said, uh, you know, the lions are missing from the park. That sculpture's gone. And the gal, oh yeah, she talked about that happened before. And then they moved to that the graveyards were having some kids vandalizing them. And this guy launched into this sermon on anybody who vandalizes a graveyard should automatically get life in prison. Life in prison. I thought, okay, I'm working on 
awake and aware of how I'm feeling and how I'm reacting. I, I, you know, that still was working in my brain. Everybody and everything can be a teacher, including people who drive you crazy. Well, this was going to be a test, I could tell. So I was noticing my reaction. I was noticing this teacher. And he moved next. Oh, yeah, I said to him, I thought, you know, come at it with some levity, just lightness. I, I hate to change his opinion, but maybe I could just add a little something. So I said, oh, I kind of hope that these kids would, maybe in their 20s and 30s, turn out to be decent community people. And, you know, it costs a lot to keep someone starting at this age all the way for their whole lifetime in jail. No, he didn't miss a beat. He moved right into capital punishment. <laughs> capital punishment. He had, he had this proof, this case in the States where two people were executed and the crime rate dropped. So he was clear that capital punishment, that punishment worked. Might be kind of unfair for these kids, but it, it would set the tone and we'd have a safe community. <clears throat> I said, I, you know, I don't remember what the, the studies show about capital punishment, but it sort of seems to me that the crime rate is dropping anyway, and I don't think capital punishment necessarily has been what made the difference. But I thought, you know, I don't know that for sure. I'm, but and then he moved into the long gun registry. That was hot last week, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I grew up on the farm. My dad had guns. We had a great respect for guns. I had a BB gun. My brother and I saved and bought one together. I know that that culture, I know that culture. And, and in my home, guns were truly respected. We were taught how to use them. But <clears throat> in my life, I just, you know, we don't have a gun anymore. We got rid of our gun a long time ago, probably when our kids were... I don't know, 12-ish, we realized that maybe having guns in the house wasn't the best thing. We didn't have any use for them. But the gal that was sitting in the back of the bus, she had guns, she was all for get rid of this registry, it's an infringement on our rights. <clears throat> I didn't know enough about it. I, I was for it, but I, you know, I didn't actually know why I was for it. It just seems logical to me that we'd register guns. But No, we moved then to handguns. Handguns. Everyone by law, should own a handgun, starting at the age of 16. And everyone should be, by, by law, compelled in school to learn gun safety. That would make the world a better place. I said, I'm, I was kind of hoping for the future with my kids and my grandkids that maybe we wouldn't have weapons and guns and we'd live together in peace. What I didn't tell him, when my son was five, the oldest one, we went to the next door neighbors for coffee. There was a 12-year-old there. He had a BB gun. I think it was a BB gun. I hope it wasn't a 22, but I can't remember. He had my five-year-old hold the target as he shot at it downstairs. <clears throat> I didn't know that. We came home and my son said he didn't want to go back there. Mommy, you know, he had me hold the target. I told my friend in the neighborhood and she said, you know, that happened to my son too. Oh, <clears throat> I guess we have to talk to the mother. <laughs> my other little experience with it, I found out at one of my son's weddings, as his brother got up to talk about his brother and what a wonderful childhood he'd had, he talked about the time they were in our garage and older brother had found 22 bullets in a jar. He'd put them into a vise, screwed it up tight, got the hammer, 
proceeded to hit them, to explode them. But he looked after his younger brother. He wrapped him in a sleeping bag and gave him one of those metal garbage can lids to protect himself so he wouldn't be hurt. I was a peacenik back at that time, and here my kids are playing with bullets in the garage. I just thought, I can't tell this guy that, but I know my family is too dumb to have a handgun. We got to our destination. I'm thinking, even the crazy people are your teacher. Be open. You have a real, you have a real set, closed mind on this subject. Be aware of your reaction, because scientists have told us that if we're emotional and kind of stirred up, we're dumber. We, our, our brain function stops, and we kind of get to the middle of the brain, not quite to the reptile brain, of fight and flight, but we're not very smart. I kind of, all the time this guy is talking to me, think, I've been telling, I sort of said to myself, be soft and sweet. Be careful what you say, because you just might have to eat your words. I didn't know where he was going with this conversation, but as we got out, my sweet mom comes to the ramp. It's windy and rainy. Down she comes, and she says, the guy is standing here running the ramp. She reaches over and puts her hand on his arm, and she said, you're the kindest man. I really needed this ride today. I'm finding it so difficult to get in and out of the car, and this service that you provide has just been a lifesaver to me. Thank you so much. This guy looked down at her, and he said, you are so welcome. What are you doing next week? You want, you've got my number. You phone me direct, and I'll just come and get you. I, he looked up at me, and he said, are you here next week? He's teary. He's a little flushed. I thought, oh, he's lovable. <laughs> my mom was coming from a whole different place than me. So it's important to be mindful of our own feelings and reactions because we do create our own reality based on what we're thinking. We need to be open to the opinions of others, even the ones that really have opposing views to ours. And remember that everybody and everything can be our teacher. I came home, and I have to tell you, it made an impact on me because I thought, I don't really know anything about the gun registry. I, I really don't know what the studies are about some things. And as I read about the gun registry, what I found out was that there's probably more important issues that we all should have been focusing on besides that long gun registry. According to this real neutral person who didn't care either way, and this research that, was, that I was reading, it said it cost a lot to set up. It cost about 0.02 of the crime budget. It's negligible. And the, yes, the police check it before they go into a home to see if there's guns registered, but they don't, they don't count on the registry identifying every gun that might be in that home. If it says there's no guns, it doesn't necessarily mean there's no guns. What this person said in this article was, there's better things and more important things we need to be thinking about. So the, I, that kind of clicked with me, and I thought, well, what is going on in our beautiful province? Well, what's going on is the oil sands. The director of Avatar, the movie Avatar, have you seen that nice movie? It's a 3D. It's about human beings going into this foreign planet and go, looking for uh, or, or mining this really wonderful um, gem or resource. 
The people that live there are very, uh, very nature. They have this beautiful life. There's a wonderful tree that's kind of like the goddess of life that's their spiritual source. And this big machine comes in and just sort of churns it all up. Well, according to the environmentalists and the Aboriginal people around the world, what they're saying is that the director, James Cameron, got the, the footage of the machines, and they're the same machines that are used in the oil sands. The other thing I noticed was that um, David Schindler has got some research out too that's saying that the quality of the water uh, is, is at question and that he's got these pictures of fish that are distorted from the water in, in the Athabasca River. And so he's called for an independent review of the oil sands um, studies that show that what they're doing is not polluting the Athabasca River. The other interesting thing that's going on is the, the chairman of the board of the uh, oil sands um, his name is Kuto. He asked for a meeting with the wonderful David Suzuki, the environmentalist. You know that television program, The Nature is Things? He lives in Vancouver. And he agreed to meet with them. They met last week. And Dr. Suzuki said to Mr. Kuto that really he needs to talk to his colleagues if he's going to be involved at all, that Kuto has to talk to his colleagues about some of this misrepresentation of what's really happening. And Mr. Coteau said he actually didn't know anything about that. He, he, would, he wrote it down and he said he'd, he'd look it up. So we've got the Avatar movie director here going to meet with our premier, Mr. Stelmack. We've got the, uh, David Suzuki involved, this great guy. So I think, you know, that probably is a more interesting story than just a long gun registry. And for me, I thought... I probably do need to take responsibility for what's going on and have a look at at least being an informed citizen and keeping an open mind on this. The other interesting thing that I bumped into as I'm trying to be a better, to build a better boat, a bigger boat, and be a, a better self, is I saw this research. Dan Cahan at Yale Law, he's a professor, he's done this research and he says, he did a research about how dangerous are guns and what's, our, what's the public perception of that. This is what he found. There's two camps of people. The camp that says guns are low risk, these same people are more likely to say there should be minimal gun control, that abortion is a threat to women's health, that marijuana is dangerous, and that climate change is not a big deal. Another camp of people say... Climate change is a major threat. They downplay the danger of marijuana. They downplay that abortion is a threat to women's health. And they worry a great deal about guns. You'd think those issues have absolutely nothing to do with each other. I mean, they don't, do they? But this was the clincher for me. He said, when you go back to these two groups and say to them, if, if there was irrefutable evidence that your position on guns was wrong, irrefutable evidence that your position on guns is wrong, would you change your point of view? 80% of people said no. Oh, I kind of looked in the mirror. I thought, would I change my point of view? I'm, I'm sitting in one of these camps almost straight down the line. I just wasn't aware of it. I just didn't know that 
I had this dogma. So I read this article about, well, what's dogma? And it is that there's this perception that's culturally filtered that ends up that people over and over end up in the same camp. And so they never change their vote. They never change their point of view. They're locked into a position. I think I need to learn to recognize my own dogma and monitor it. Even the people who drive you crazy can be your teacher. I think for me that was true. I was really needing to be aware of my perceptions and my thinking. I could tell that I wasn't keeping a complete open mind in my conversation. I'm really for peace in this world. I know that we are a diverse people. We have different religious points of view. We have obviously different views about gun control and what's in war probably too. But if we're going to live together, I think we need to be able to somehow hold in one hand our differences and in our other hand our love and our, and our vision for what we're trying to create and to somehow run that through our heart so that we can say, I love you. Thank you. Please forgive me for having you know, an entrenched point of view. I'm trying to be open and be a listener. Because I think this is going to go on into the future forever, that we are different. We're unique, perfect, whole and complete just as we are. But we're also a work in progress. Out beyond ideas of right and wrong, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there lies a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, Even the phrase, each other, doesn't make any sense. I think that if we could all think that way, we'd have built a bigger boat. I'm on the journey of becoming a better self. I'm a work in progress. I think I met my teacher this week. As a closing, I'm wondering if you would... Join with me. It's, uh, I'm planning to do a, a sort of a meditation mantra. I get this nice email from a Dr. Larkin who's a neuroscientist. And I've tried this one. It's to help us stay in this positive, loving, peaceful, gr- um, grateful energy. He recommends that we do this in the morning and we do this at the last thing at night. And we do it if we're hitting a moment during the day where our energy starts to spiral down. I'll show it to you and demonstrate it, and then I'll ask you to stand up and do it with me three times. Are you game for it? Okay. Peace. Joy. Love. Gratitude. Gratitude. Peace. Peace.
peace. You ready? Want to stand up? Don't whack your neighbor. Peace. Joy. Love. Gratitude. Gratitude. Peace. 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 Joy. Love. Gratitude. Gratitude. Peace. 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 Last time. Peace. Joy. Love. Gratitude. Gratitude. Peace. 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 So this week, when your teacher appears, take a deep breath. You might need to do the mantra. But remember, we live in a beautiful universe and that there's really one life. That life is God's life. That life is my life. That life is perfect. And so it is. Thank you.